Hey, Dan Benjamin Sham. Hey, how are you doing? Benjamin Sham Alama. Oh, that was nice. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Uh, hi. Hey. Hi. How are you? I didn't do my normal hello because I knew it was you. Yeah. Did you know what you know what today is, right? Mm. Oh, it's Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th. That's my special day. Is this like a lucky day for you or a, a worry, worrisome, unlucky day? No, it's a lucky day because I was born on a Friday the 13th. Oh, wow. So, uh, so as part of my childhood um, conviction that I was somehow... Um, In, an enchanted being. Some kind of enchanted being. Yeah. Friday the 13th seemed like my, <laughs> my day of enchantment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah when a friday the 13th comes comes along i feel like i feel a certain amount of ownership proprietary right relationship to it it's weird how things get people get superstitious about things and you know like in the as as you know in the jewish faith 13 is a big number but it's a very positive number it's your mm-hmm. bar mitzvah time it's it's your you're treated as an adult in the community and responsible for your own actions. And it's a big 13 is a good thing. Right. And it's always weird when they don't have a 13th floor of a building. I don't like it either. I'll walk right out of a building. Well, you, you won't even go, you wouldn't even take a meeting. Cause it's not the 21st floor. It's the 20th floor. Quit, quit trying to sandbag me. Well, you're right. And here's the weird thing about it is if you're counting floors, it doesn't matter whether you call the 13th floor 13 or 14, it's still the 13th floor. Like well, if you're see, on floor thir- 14 of a, of a building with 13 floors and they don't label it 13 in the elevator and you're, you're still on the 13th floor, whether they call it floor 13 or not, you're still there. See, this is, you're into the whole, like, if I call red, blue and blue, red. <laughs> and you but I'm call saying it doesn't red, matter. Red, blue, it blue. doesn't matter if you call it the 14th floor and you're skipping 13 on the button. It's still the 13th floor. You can't get yeah. around it. I think what you're saying is self-explanatory. It is then the 13th why, floor. Then why do they skip the number? Because <clears throat> I think the suspi- I think what it means is that they do not think very highly of, of witches or of Jesus or whoever is monitoring this. <laughs> I, think it is, I think it is. <laughs> jesus that's monitoring whoever is monitoring luck right jesus has got a lot to think about yeah and so he looks down and he's like oh i get it you know or he doesn't he just scans it nobody gets off on the 13th floor he moves on to something bigger yes but i feel like it's a sign that architects or or building designers or whatever whoever makes that decision Uh which seems a little whimsical but, but if you think back to when it, when it started, I mean, were people having fun with this or was this something, was this something serious? Yeah. I don't know, but I, but it seems to, it seems to be, it seems to be a little bit condescending toward the supernatural powers, right? Like the luck powers or the, the spook powers. Mm-hmm. Are they, are they really fooled by this? I don't think so. And if anything, they're not reading the button to know which how to get to floor thirteen. They're just going oh. right to it. Oh, wait! They're a drawn now. to it. You see. See now, now you're you are attributing something else to them. Are you sure? I mean, are you sure that it's not the number thirteen that brings them? 
I oh, think just I, the number itself is yeah. what's attracting them. They're not they're not able to actually count and figure out where to go or the fact that the truth of the 13th floor is mm-hmm. going to draw them to it magically. See, I think if you're in spirit form and you're malevolent and you're going to do a haunting, you're not floating around looking for the 13 the number 13. You're going to the 13th floor. You're Are beyond you? these these sort of you know the 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 ruse that mm-hmm. we play upon ourselves see this seems this seems to me to be a sort of tumultic interpretation of it <laughs> in, right? per, per, I, in my case i think anything would be like the the, the numerology, i don't think i could get around it the numerology that is in that's intrinsic to certain practices of the jewish faith yeah um would would maybe support this interpretation but i think it has much more to do with so just that combination of numbers 13 and and i don't i'm not exactly sure that they are haunting spooks I'm, i don't think that that's what people say it's bad luck not because there are spooks exactly mm-hmm. but i think because jesus frowns on it or somebody somebody's like the bad luck game is what's played here so if you if you run into a guy at an auto parts store mm-hmm. Who has a black cat and the number thirteen tattooed on him? Yeah, yeah, right. And maybe some tumbling dice and some and and a ace of spades. <laughs> now, what is he saying? He's not. Though, the, I don't think he's trying to ward off bad luck. He's trying to say, he's trying to flout it, mm. right? Like you can't stop me, bad luck. Right. Here, I put a number thirteen right on me. So yeah, I think it's got to be, it's got to be something in the, in the, I don't think it's the counting. I think that's, I think that's something that you're, you're bringing over from Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi. Right, right, right. And it's much more a, uh, it's much more something. I mean, oh, here's the thing. Yeah. If you roll the dice. Yes. You can only get to 12. Oh, on, on the traditional dice, like the Vegas dice. Wait a minute! Because in D and D, you can get you can get way up. You can oh get all God. the way to twenty. D and D, come on. on! You can get all the way to twenty. This dice goes to twenty. So there is a thing I've been researching this uh, since we started talking. There is a name for a fear of the number thirteen. It's triskaidekaphobia. You know this. <laughs> or did you look it. it up? Did you look no, it up? Oh, I'm not somebody like you who's researching I things. Research, and, I research. I have to research. But I'm in the middle of a conversation. I'm not thinking about like, well, what's the story here? No, I'm a, I'm I'm a uh, I'm a number thirteen baby, right? So, so this is you're familiar with everything in and around the, the thirteen. I mean, obviously, I don't know why it's considered unlucky. I didn't I didn't uh, I didn't go that far, but I know triskaidekaphobia. Okay. Because also, are you familiar with the theories of of why it's unlucky? I mean, there's a certain amount of my education that involves knowing, uh, <laughs> knowing words uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, what the words uh, stand in, in representation of. Right, because words uh-huh. mean things. Yeah, they do. But I'm, I'm, I'm noticing, and I, I was, I was, as I was driving in, I realized that a certain part of growing old with dignity <laughs> is that at, a, at the point at which your faculties start to decline, your uh, your ankles start to crack, mm-hmm. and you start to forget words that you once 
didn't even have to struggle to lay your hands on. Oh. I think that growing old with dignity, I just had this insight on the way here. Growing old with dignity means that you do not talk about those things. Oh. And that the, that the, this phase that we're in right now, which is like the first sign of all these things happening. Um, because our generation thought we would live forever. We're all having these conversations of like, Oh my God, can you believe it? Look at this. I can't even, I can't even remember the word for, ah, or whatever. Yeah, you know, we're, yeah. we're, we're kind of wall, we're wallowing partly, but also like in amazement, we're surveying our futures and are surveying our present and going like, Oh my God, look at this, like my mortality. But then I thought about like, the real cool customers mm-hmm. who get older, mm. they make no reference to those things. It's got to be happening to them too. But, you know, I don't think Charlie Watts walks around talking about how his bones are creaking. You know, he just, he, <laughs> he bears it. He bears it in, in silence. And that's he's what the, I'm going to start he's doing. He's the drummer? Oh, Jesus. I'm not a big Charlie Watts guy. Come on. He's the Rolling Stones guy, right? Yeah. Why don't you research it while we're talking? Well, I will then. He's the Rolling Stones guy. Yes. Charlie Watts. See, I was right. He's the drummer of the Rolling Stones. You were right. I'm keeping a little, I'm keeping a little book here where I check off the things that you're right on. Okay. It's not going to be a long book. (laughs) You get a check next to Charlie Watts. Thank you. Uh, So that's my new plan. Anyway, I'm going to start. I'm just going to start suffering in silence like all the great, <laughs> all the greatest generation. Yeah. <clears throat> How's that cough going? Oh, it's great. <clears throat> I think that I'm, I think that I'm headed. I'm not going to talk about this, <clears throat> but I think I'm headed toward my dad's voice. <laughs> <clears throat> so much earlier than I thought I was going to be. Oh yeah. And I don't know why. I don't know what's happening. But I'm just slowly, it's just turning into this. <laughs> and then pretty soon it's this. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just trying to talk to get through all of the bullshit. And it's, you know, it's just a gradual progression. Do you find that you have like your parents sort of, even though the voice may not all, already be there, do you find that you have their sort of mannerisms or affectations in any, in any way? Well, you know, my mom is utterly affectationless oh. and the her her only her only like uh noticeable sort of traits uh, in that way are that she still has a little bit of midwestern not just you know not just midwestern tang i mean she doesn't say arn anymore she doesn't say arn the clothes or <laughs> Uh, oh. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, but 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 that was in her at one point. Yeah, she beat it out. She certainly has a lot of Quaker oh. Ohio expectations. Yeah, of the world. My dad, you know, they, neither one of them were affected very much. But you know, my dad's mother was born in 1889, and his father was born in 1880. Wow. And so, or like Deadwood time, 1885, right? Yeah. So I'm only one generation away from uh, from people wearing bustles. 
and what that has done <laughs> and you're barely one generation away from it yeah sure and you're and, trying to keep that going and my dad he had a lot of jazz hipster <laughs> talk right i mean my ja- dad came of age in the 1930s and so he had a lot of you know not like 1950s jazz hipster talk like he wasn't shooby dooby mm-hmm. my dad was like copacetic he was he was that uh that duke ellington style of um of like Apollo theater jazz hipster talk that that was sort of in his lexicon. He dropped some of that stuff. He was very dismissive of the shooby dooby, um, scoobity doo wah sort of. 50s oh, right. Stuff. That was just teeny bopper talk, but he, so, but so my dad felt like the Victorians re his parents. Mm-hmm. And his grandparents who lived with him when he was a kid, like they left Kentucky after the civil war. It was sort of in the, (laughs) in the immediate aftermath of the civil war, like let's get out of Kentucky. So he, you know, in the twenties and thirties dad, those were, I feel like times when in America, Everybody was looking to the future, right? World War I was over and we had the automobile and the airplane and the, and the telephone. And people were like, we are not, we're not old fashioned. We're wearing straw boaters now and, right. and uh, long pants and we're headed into the 20th century and, and, uh, and we've got this new, and we're wearing raccoon coats and, trying to see how many kids can fit into a phone booth or on top of a flagpole or whatever. So dad left a lot of that behind, but the Victorian thinking and the civil war era, Southern thinking that was in his mother's family. That's just, it just permeated. Right. And it got translated to me because it was just in the air. Right. So a lot of a lot of kids that are <clears throat> maybe a little bit younger than me whose parents were were hippies. I mean, I was born in 1968. There I had peers in high school whose parents were had them in 1968 when they were 22 years old. Oh, yeah, yeah. And their parents would have been my dad my dad's generation. And then there would have been a layer of grandparents in there who were born in 1900, you know, like I'm, I'm several generations behind yeah. both in, both in language and culture. So that accounts maybe for a little bit of like, if it, if it, I don't, I don't, I don't think I seem like I'm putting on airs. I just am, am like a, um, my education was in this older, from this old, these older expectations, you know, like in 19 or in 1865, most families had three books in their house. They had the Bible, (laughs) they had Shakespeare and they had, you know, the Alban almanac. I mean, it wasn't like you, 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 you traveled across America on a wagon train with your library. 
So books had both, there were a lot fewer books, but also they had more significance. Because a lot of people in my dad's generation can quote from Shakespeare at length. And you go, how the hell do you know how to do that? Well, it was like, there were three books. So yeah. You they had a lot of time to learn those. Yeah, if you were, if you were, <clears throat> if you like to read, you didn't have unlimited. My mom talked about going to the library and having it be a big deal, and she could check out just a few books, and her brother could check out a few books, and he would get Zane Grey westerns, and she would get uh, Louisa May Alcott. But when they finished with their handful of books, they would trade because they'd run out of books. And they weren't going to go to the library until the following week. And so they would each read one another's books just to, just because they were starved, which is a thing. I mean, how do we, how can we relate to that? You just researched Triskaidekaphobia. Yep. And we're maintaining your end of the conversation, sort of. Come on. <laughs> Took me three seconds to type in unlucky 13 in the wiki beginning and click the Wikipedia entry. Click the wiki. That's all you got to do. We would like to say thanks very much to our sponsor, Blue Apron. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. They achieve this by supporting a more sustainable food systems, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. Hey, that's us, right? I wanted to try this, you know? And, you know, I'm like gluten-free. And I said, do you guys have any gluten-free stuff? They said, we do have gluten-free stuff. So I had to try some of our gluten-free meals. And like, it's really, really good. And the problem is you don't really feel like you're in the mood uh, to go and like, oh, well, what what should we make? And we're, how do I figure out the recipe? And like, now I got to go pick out all these little ingredients for the recipe. And we don't have any of that stuff here. So you know what? We'll just uh, We'll just microwave a pizza. That's no way to live. It's no way to live, I tell you. Instead, Blue Apron, they got their uh, sustainably uh, sourced seafood. They got humanely raised beef. They got free-range chickens. They got natural pork. They use uh, regenerative farming practices with all the food that they get. And they can deliver this to 99% of the continental U.S. and 99.5% of what they call food deserts. Go and try this stuff out. It's great. And you get to cook like you get to cook with your with your family again. You get to cook with friends like it's uh, it, it's it, returning to the old times, returning to the traditional times. And you do it without spending anywhere near the kind of money that you'd spend on eating out or at some of these high end grocery chains. You're going to spend under ten dollars per person for a healthy, delicious meal. You know, I see I'm looking at my notes here. They got uh, crispy cod and cabbage slaw tacos with pepita pineapple, avocado, salsa. I had that. It was amazing. Like all pan-seared pork chops, all of this stuff. They're going to be making it in your house. It's going to look good. It's going to taste good. It's awesome. So I want you guys to go and check this out. Incredible ingredients, incredible meals, high quality standards, all this great stuff. Go and check it out. You're going to go to blueapron.com slash roadwork blueapron.com slash roadwork to try these awesome seasonal recipes pre-portioned ingredients delicious home-cooked meals when you go there to that special url you'll get two meals free with free shipping it's a really good deal blueapron.com slash roadwork go check it out
Did you go to the library when you were little? Did your folks take you to the library? Yeah, all the time. I mean, both of my parents were in education. My mom was uh, an English teacher in first in high school, and then she uh, went to community college, taught there. She didn't go to community college. She went to community college to teach. Right. And, right. Uh, and was down there teaching for many, many years. My aunt, uh, until very recently, was the... Uh, I guess the director of the university library where she lives. So yeah, like libraries are a big thing for us. I was there all the time, all the time, too much. Right. The library. Did you read the Hardy boy mysteries? I know that I read the Hardy boy mysteries when I was very young. You, you were very young. Yes. When I read that enough that I know that I read it, but not that I really remember it. Those were fairly sophisticated storylines for a very young person. Well, I was read like I was one of these really, really early to read kids. Like I, I started talking really, really early, like ten mm. months old or younger, and uh, surprise, and was reading. I mean, like I had read The Hobbit when I was like nine, nine, ten years old. Uh huh. So this was probably the time period that I would have read some of these. I didn't. Re- I know there were a lot of them, and I did not read most of them but i know that i read a few of them yeah on our weekly trips to the library i would always get i mean what could you what what could you get three books i guess (laughs) three books at the library was the was the limit and i would get for for a while for a brief period did you read all of them no there were too many to read all of them but but um but about that same age nine eight nine years old you go to the library you get three hardy boy books you come back stay up under your covers in the middle of the night with your flashlight and uh, reading about the mystery of the three-legged dog or the mystery of the, (laughs) the, the, the case of the haunted case. Do you still remember those? Like, I mean, like if, if I were to pull one out and ask you about it, do you think you'd recall, are you one of those people who you can read something and it stays with you forever? I'm not sure I would remember the exact plot points of the Hardy boy, each individual Hardy boy story because they were all basically the same. But I definitely remember the world that they lived in, the, their friend Chet, and they had a boathouse. I don't remember a, any of this. They had a boathouse and, and, uh, <clears throat> and like a Chris Craft style wooden speedboat that often figured in their adventures. A boathouse. And, you know, they were, I feel like it, they were set in the Midwest somewhere, somewhere like Michigan. It feels very Michigan to me. But at the time, in Seattle and, and in Alaska, we didn't have that same sense of even that little dis, uh, difference between the history that you feel in Michigan and the history you feel in Seattle was significant. Yeah. You know, in, in 1857, when Seattle was founded, Michigan was already well-established. There were families. I mean, my mom's family was in Ohio back to 1812 or something. And Seattle didn't even exist at the time. Um, it wasn't even a dot on somebody's imagination. It was just, it was obviously there was a large population of people here already. But as far as like a town with houses, didn't exist. So yeah. that, that feeling growing up was, we, it, was, it always felt like we were pretty new here. And imagine, you know, like me, like moving from Philadelphia. Old. Very old. To South Florida, which was, although full of old people from Philadelphia and New York. Totally new. 
it was totally new and there was no history of any kind there. And in fact, where we lived was like, now they've sort of built South Florida all the way up into the Everglades. Like it essentially ends at, at the Everglades now. But when I was there, like we lived on the outskirts and there was just nothing past us. We had moved into a new, a new house in a new development in a new part of town. And it wasn't like we could, we were in like the suburb where you could drive to the, to the old part of town. There was no old, the old part of town was 10 years old. (laughs) It was, and I, I mean, I didn't really understand when I moved there that I didn't like that. Like it wasn't tangible to me as a, as a kid that, that what I, part of what I was missing was a place that had a history and that felt substantial. It felt like people had been there and, and created uh, this, this place that meant something. Yeah. And it's really weird going from a place where, you know, like I got to see like the Liberty Bell and like, I think I, I have a memory of touching the Liberty Bell. Oh, back when you could touch it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then later they put it sort of behind this, this really hardcore plexiglass <laughs> uh, thing. But I, I vividly remember that and going to the Franklin Institute and the, you know, the art museum where the, the you know, Rocky ran on, up and down the steps and, you know, for our international listeners. And it was, you know, <laughs> it, it was very much a, a place with just tons and tons and tons of history. You couldn't escape the history. It, it was all, everything was historic. And, Going to this this place where, like, I remember when my my uh, my mom told me we were moving to Florida. I like the only thing I could think about was that there was that Bugs Bunny cartoon where he's stranded on the island, mm-hmm. and uh, no, I'm sorry, no, he's not on the island. It's uh, the Bugs Bunny cartoon where he, where the two guys are are stranded on the island. And they keep looking at each other and imagining one of them like becomes a hamburger in his oh, mind, and the other becomes right. a chicken leg or whatever. Right, uh, like. That was Florida to me. Like I had, and then I had the images of the Koopa Kai from uh, Gilligan's Island, and like living on. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm like, how can we move there? Like, are there schools there? Like, what? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't want to live like that. You know, like I had no idea what it was, and it, you know, moving down there was this this huge letdown of like, this place really sucks. Like, there's yeah. nothing good here. There's drug nothing stores. Good. Yeah, they got drug stores. Yeah. Uh, when you pronounce it Florida yeah. with, an, with an A, yeah. is that your Pennsylvania accent or is that your Florida That's accent? my Philly accent. Because in Flor- Flor- Florida, Mir, down there. In Philadelphia, Florida, they actually pronounce it Florida. Florida. Right? And, 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 and I said like Boca Raton. It's mm-hmm. Boca Raton. Oh, Boca Raton. But Raton. Yeah. So you kept, you kept some of that Florida and what would you say? Mir? Mir. 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 Down there. Water. Can't lose it. I tried. And if you listen, I mean, I, you know, I try hard to straighten up and fly right, but mm-hmm. stuff is still there. <laughs> and it was well, fun. I, I was watching. There's this, there is this, like a known thing of the, the Philadelphia accent. Mm-hmm. And they've got these guys on there with these really like heavy Philly accents. And I was watching with a group of my friends and they were laughing because like this sounded like another it's it's weird it's almost like a its own it's not like you hear the 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 baston accent you know that mm-hmm. this is just as weird and just it's easy to misunderstand it because there's like street philly talk street philly yeah and like i remember it i hear it and it 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 i can't really speak that way but like 
I grew up hearing people talk like that all the time. And, and, and where I came from, it was also sort of mixed with like enough Yiddish <laughs> so that, you know, like you, I, I could understand my grandparents who would, there would be a, a Yiddish word every five or six words. Really? Yeah, it would just get it, would, it as an expression. Like you might say, "Oh man," well, they would. That's how they they a Yiddish expression would come out. They'd say, "Oh, oy vey, oy vey, or oy vey smear, a mashuga," you know, yeah. whatever it was would, would yeah would come out. And, and a lot of the time, I, because is that because their parents spoke Yiddish fluently and yes. they just they just got Yiddish sort of they didn't speak it themselves. My grandmother could speak it. Mm-hmm. Uh, she could speak it enough conversation where if she was all of a sudden had been there in a group of people who spoke only Yiddish, she would understand them and be able to do basic communication. Wow. But because, you know, there, there's so much expression with it and so, so much gestures and inflection and meaning that comes through that even though I couldn't understand necessarily what they were saying, I got it. Oh, uh, sure. But when I was younger, they would use this to communicate with each other about me directly in front of me. The way that, you know, like when your kid's like two years old, you can be like, uh, you know, the P-R-E-S-E-N-T that we're not going to talk about right now. You know, you're like, oh, right. And then your kids learn to spell and they're like, well, now we can't hide it anymore. Well, they, right. they would do that and they would speak Yiddish. But I think, you know, the history of Yiddish is fascinating. And the fact that it's it, it for so long was this communal language that that these people could speak and communicate with was always fascinating to me and uh and and th- they would use it to say to say these things that was almost like code talking it was like their own version of like navajo language <laughs> they could say whatever they wanted no one no one outside of the community would have any clue what they were talking about right well that's true of every language but like it, it wasn't like you could look, hear it and could just like look it up, you know. We had no no reference point for it. Mm-hmm. Like I could have gotten a Spanish English dictionary pretty easily at twelve years mm-hmm. old. Hmm. But you're saying there were no Yiddish English dictionaries? <laughs> not that I not that I could find back then. There there have to be Yiddish well, English dictionaries. There are. I'm sure there are. Yeah, my understanding of Yiddish was that well, in part, right? You weren't supposed to speak Hebrew, right? Hebrew was supposed to only be the spoken language after the Messiah returns. Oh, is that is, is that so? That was my understanding. And so <laughs> so the choice to have Hebrew be the language of Israel right. was fairly controversial because it was, you know, it was considered somewhat of a sacred language only to be used in temple. Be, because it was going to be the because you were saving it for for the return. And so there's a there's a little you know there's so much of this return of the messiah business in uh in the holy land mm-hmm. where a lot of the a lot of the uh the evangelical christians here really support Israel because it's part of the prophecy mm. of the return of the of the Jesus messiah. And so if that stuff isn't all cooking along Right, you can't say, "Oh, Jesus is coming back," unless some conditions, some preconditions are met, which all have to be happening in Jerusalem, right, or or thereabouts. And so the the uh, the super evangelicals are like really watching the whole daily news uh-huh. of Jerusalem because they're looking for looking for the the signs. 
And, uh, and so, but the Israelis are like sort of playing fast and loose, I think with some of the rules because there was that whole problem of mostly it being secular, somewhat secular Jews who were founding the country. Mm -hmm. So they were like, you know what we need, we need a language here. And Yiddish is sort of a German derived thing. Let's go with Hebrew. It's our tongue after all. Right. But I'm sure there were some other people that were like, meh. And I think that the Lubavitchers and the super Orthodox Orthodoxers speak Yiddish rather than Hebrew because they're, because they're maintaining this prohibition. Mm. That's why all the people in Williamsburg speak with some sort of German accents because they're, they're speaking Yiddish to one another. Interesting. This is my, this is my sort of cobbled together understanding of what's going on in that whole scene. I don't particularly follow Messiah politics very closely (laughs) because, because I also (laughs) feel like on the other side, like ISIS, uh, not the other side. I don't mean to suggest that there are two sides, but I'm saying like sort of over, let's say on the other side of the river Jordan, let's say that's what I meant. Okay. On the other side of the river Jordan, (laughs) um, there's also a lot of Messiah. There are a lot of rules about it. And I think one of the things that has to happen is a caliphate has to be restored. And that's why, uh, that's why ISIS has such a, a broad appeal to young people in the Muslim world because it, once the caliphate is restored, then the Messiah clock is ticking. And uh, it, can't, it can't really get ticking until, until you reestablish this, you know, the kingdom on earth. Oh, right. So here we all are, and, and those of us living in a secular life are, are sort of caught politically between all these different Messiah versions where it's like, well, the, you know, until the man in the yellow hat comes, right. then uh, Curious George cannot climb to the top of the banyan tree, which is the sign of the return of the, of the, the prophet. <laughs> Uh, the return of the prophet who is going to immediately write on the subway walls. And then we're all gonna, you know, we're all going to dance the Watusi and then the chosen ones float up generally. And the rest of us sinners just percolate down here. Yeah. Till the blood wave. Were and the you, Cthulhu. Were, were you raised with religion or religious beliefs? Uh, well, both of my parents invented their own religion and my dad's religion did not resemble my mom's religion at all, uh, which was not really problematic because both of them felt like my mom, maybe more than my dad felt like a, they had invented the right religion, but it was the correct version. Uh And so the fact that, you know, from my mom's standpoint, the fact that my dad didn't understand was just par for the course. But my dad practiced, you know, my dad grew up in a very Japanese culture because there were a lot of Japanese in Seattle and my dad had a great affinity for them hmm. because they were the better basketball players. <laughs> and so, so my dad practiced a kind of ancestor worship that I think he picked up from his, like sh- his sort of casual Shinto exposure because all of the Japanese kids, all of the, you know, the Nisei here or the, the Issei, 
whichever the second generation is. Uh, they were all secular too. It's not like they were, they just had to go pray at the shrine on, on Sunday right. and they, and they wanted to go play baseball too. But my dad picked up a lot of that ancestor worship. And so he just talked to his mother and his, then eventually his sister his somewhat his grandparents. I mean, as people died that he knew personally, he just entered them into the roles of who he was kind of praying to, but it was very irreverent, Mm. but he did it. It was his own practice, right? He didn't just do it for show when he was alone in his house, he would walk around talking to his ancestors. Yeah. And you know, maybe leave them little burnt offerings. I'm not a hundred percent sure he was irreverent as fuck about it, but also <laughs> also was practicing some strange religion. I'm not sure he, he wasn't an animist. He didn't talk to trees, but he did. He did feel like his pets had, which uh, were always cats. He felt like his cats were his friends. And had superior knowledge. I mean, you know, he, he really, he pieced it together out of a lot of different traditions. But I mean, I watched him very carefully as he got ill and died. And he never was, he never said like, he, he never got any more religious than he'd been before. I think there was a little bit when he was at the old folks home, there, there's a whole, there's a whole business, a whole like not just business, but like an industry of people preying on old people in this country. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't be aware of it until you were close to an old person because they are inundated with phone calls and now emails and letters in the mail offering them all these things. And there are psychics that prey on them and there are all, I mean, in a way the publisher's clearing house is a, is an institutional way of preying on old people. But there are all these other ones, people calling them and saying like timeshares are a way of preying all the old people. There are these fantastic offers and all these old people kind of sitting around in their, in their lazy boy recliners mm-hmm. wondering if they did enough for their kids wondering if they had made a big enough impact on the world. And then someone cold calls them, gets their phone number from AARP and says, have we got a deal for you? If you just sign over a portion of your, Oh, this is the other thing. Old people have a guaranteed income. A lot of the time retirement and social security. If you just sign over some portion of your social security check, social security check every month, you'll have access to these fantastic timeshares all around the world. And you can go vacation there with your family. Sounds like a great idea. It's a great idea. And so the old person and this, I don't mean to be ageist any more than I am when I tell young people that they don't know uh, very much about politics. Old people do not know much about anything anymore because they revert to a kind of childlike state. And so they're like, wow, that sounds amazing. And you know, I never got a vacation home for myself, but now all I have to do is sign over some small portion of this imaginary income I'm getting. And I have access, all the brochures arrive in the mail, you know, access to all these wonderful, like beachfront 
condos and I can take all my grandkids and, you know, and I'll be a hero and I'll finally have done something. I'll finally have done something to benefit my family and all this kind of sort of uh, like evil dream casting onto people. And so they, you know, so you end up with, with situations where their entire check has been signed over to faith healers and, and psychics and people in these, you know, these uh, crazy Southern television churches and so forth. And it's a, I mean, it's a massive industry that we don't regulate largely because it happens under the rubric of a church and churches aren't taxed and they're given special dispensation. Yeah. And these timeshare things are, you know, they're, it's perfectly reasonable, the contract that they're offering you, except a, you're never going to use it because you're old, right? Your kids don't want to go on vacation with you to Boca Raton, right? And, uh, when you do get there, those places are awful. So it's this, you know, it's this whole like, and I think my dad got sucked into some of that. And at one point I was opening his mail and it was clear that he was carrying on a, 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 a a correspondence with a psychic Mm. and it had been ongoing. She'd been sending him letters for some time. You could tell by this letter. And she was really trying to soak him. And I, you know, I looked her up and she's this whatever licensed and registered like a psychic somewhere. You can get licensed as that. I don't know. But I mean, it's not like she was just some, some scammer working out of her car. Like this was an industry for her and how she'd found my dad. I have no idea, but you know, my sister practices a kind of religion of that's, that's, that's one of these mishmashes of Buddhism and relentless positivity Mm. and, um, and also like think into action, right? If you are, if you like the secret, like the secret, if you imagine a thing and, and are, and are direct and positive about that thing, you will, you will manifest it. Right. It will become true by virtue of the fact that within the universe, there are energies that you can collect and use. But my sister is very authoritative about it. You know, she's not somebody that's sitting around in a dream state. She is out there pra- wielding that philosophy like a flaming sword. Mm. And I used to mock her relentlessly, but boy, she has, she's actually, if, if anyone can be said to have manifest things in their life, boy, my sister has managed to do it. And of course it confirms in her, the, the truth of her, her outlook. And my dad had some of that too. Although, Mm. although he always sort of stopped short of, of, uh, I don't know, using magic. But so I, I waved this letter in his face and was like, what the hell are you doing? Mm. You dumbass. And he was like, well, she told me that I was going to come into a lot of money. And I was like, yeah, is that right? What a surprise. She told you that. And then he did, he, you know, he bought a timeshare. And <laughs> when I found out about that, mm. I didn't want to deal with it. Yeah. So I called my sister 
And I said, guess what? Dad bought a timeshare and they're, and they've like attached themselves to his, his money. And she immediately got in her car and drove to where I was with Mm. dad. Wow. And she got on the phone with the timeshare people. And she basically, she basically verbally threatened them with like federal crime, like a federal prosecution. She went after them in that way that only she can do. Yeah. Where it was, it was very polite, very formal, very, very strict. And she said, you will return every cent that you've taken from him. You will cancel this and never contact him again. You will. She just went down, did the following things. And, you know, she got the argument from them that, and I get this argument when I call those people and eventually I get tired of arguing and go, okay, you know what? Like my, I, I tried to cancel my alarm company a couple of weeks ago and they were like, well, in order to cancel your alarm contract, you have to write us a letter. Oh, you know what? Uh, That, yeah, I remember that last time I had to do that. Yeah. You have to write us a letter. Tell us why you want to cancel the contract. And a month later, you know, perhaps if, if you have filled out, if you have written the letter correctly, we will deign to cancel this contract, this contract written in blood where we're providing you a shitty service. And I argued with the guy for 45 minutes and made no headway with him. And eventually was like, fucking fuck you and your company, but fine, I'll do whatever, you know, like I, you can only demand so much satisfaction. And isn't that ridiculous though? If the person's just like, well, this is standard practice. So what what happened with the timeshare? My sister does not somehow she is not, um, she's not swayed by that kind of thing, not dissuaded by it. She just stays there in that space with the customer service agent, ratcheting it up, always asking to speak to their supervisor until she arrives at the, at the last best place. And then just with a diamond tip drills into (laughs) there because what she's doing is imagining the script that they're working from and knowing that somewhere in this organization, there is someone with the authority to do what she wants. And so she just drills like a dentist's drill until she finds the nerve. And then she just sits that she doesn't drill any further. She just sits and pulses on them. And (laughs) I've, I've watched it a thousand times. I have no idea how she does it. It terrifies me as well as just leaves me perspiring with admiration. And she just sat on the phone with these people until they, refunded all of his money, wow. which they did. Wow. Canceled his contract. I think maybe wrote my sister a letter of apology and admiration. No way. Uh, and like, and by the end, this is the, this is the, the miracle of her. By the end, they were laughing with each other. And she was like, you know, this has been a great conversation. And they're like, you can hear them on the other end. Like, oh my like God. they're happy to have, they're happy to have made her happy as what, And they're, you know, when they get off the phone, I'm sure that they are drenched in sweat. And then they look around their office and there's like 40 people all sitting there. They've all stopped taking calls. They're all just watching <laughs> this. And, and, uh, and then the, the, like the supervisor looks around and realizes, wait a minute, I, I, I'm not supposed to have done that. Like that, I just, what, how did that happen? Like it's some, it's, it is a kind of psionic power. Yeah. I don't know. I really don't know how she does it. I, if I could have, if I could have that 
my life would be so much different because all that dread that you have about dealing with that, that side of corporate life. I mean, my sister doesn't have any dread. She, she longs to call customer service agents. It's like right up at the top of the list of like, Oh, and do I get to call a customer service agent today? And, and basically like take their clothes off one by one and look at their clothes and look at the tags in their clothes and, you know, sort of talk to them about their choices. And then at the end they're naked and they're holding out their wallet to her. But so that was my dad's religion was basically if you stuffed confetti into a t-shirt cannon and the confetti being pieces of every religion in the world shot it into the air and then collected the confetti as it came down in a Tupperware container. What you had in the container would be my dad's religion. That's, I mean, most people don't have that much of an open mind for it, especially not people of that generation. You know, I think that's pretty unique. My dad's dad was a minister. Even more unique than was a was a minister, and when my dad was born, he was born in the church where my where his father was the the <laughs> uh, the I guess minister, right? He was the it was his church, and it was in Frederick, Maryland. And uh, then I think, and I think what that did was it. My dad had such a uh, such an aversion to his own father that it soured him on on organized religion let's say mm-hmm. oh and his mother was a was a singer and part of the way that she spent her weekends was that she would go sing in every church she would according to my dad she would grab him and his uh siblings and march them from church to church on sunday because she would join the choir or sing a solo in the choir of uh, five different churches on Capitol Hill on a Sunday morning. So there was a little bit of that, you know, uh, non-denominational that my grandmother had a non-denominational desire to be in any church where singing was happening. And so I think that that just, you know, that got into all of, all of that generation, my dad, his brother and sister, where they just practiced some kind of hodgepodge. I mean, I think it's so interesting because like that was almost sort of frowned, not frowned upon, but like my grandparents were very like clear as far as like, this is the religion. Like that's it. Like they never worried about it. They didn't think about anything else. And there was a funny line in a old Woody Allen movie where he's talking to his parents while he's sort of on this religious quest uh-huh. of like he's trying to find his own religion and at some point he finds Catholicism so he's experimenting with that <laughs> and his parents who are just the most sort of typical New York Jews you could imagine in the movie they're like but why Catholicism you know and he's talking about it and he's like he's like don't don't you worry about what's going to happen when you die he's like so what no what's going to happen I'll worry about it then and that's very much like you know, the attitude of my grandparents as well. Like, you know, and not much you can do get there and deal with it when we deal with it. But my mom kind of, you know, she was very, she was kind of followed along in 
in Judaism to a point, and that point kind of like there was still this aspect of like crystals, like crystals are you know oh. you can med- meditation and like psychic phenomenon and things like that, like uh-huh. a bit of magical reality kind of stuff, and and very much that kind of the secret and that kind of thinking magical thinking in a way and thought uh-huh. thoughts are real and, and take, you know, reality and that type of thing. She took that very seriously. But if you research like ancient Judaism, like that's sort of mystical Judaism, like that kind of ties into it. And I think that's sure, Kabbalah. Yeah. Kabbalah is kind of how she maybe kind of connected with that. And so I was kind of raised with this sort of strange, like until I was 13, like I was in Hebrew school, I got my bar mitzvah and everything else, but I never, like I, w- I was never connected to that. Like I was raised in it, but it never felt like a thing that, that I connected with. Like I always had fun at the Seder and everything else, but it was never, like it didn't speak to me on an internal level, you know, like I never felt connected. I was never aware of the presence of God or anything like that. Uh, and so like when I turned 13, you know, as a, I was now a man at mm-hmm. 13 and they take mm-hmm. that seriously. Like mm-hmm. you can make decisions, you're responsible for your actions now mm-hmm. and you can make decisions, not, you know, huge decisions that are like financial <laughs> or anything, but like the kind of thing of like, well, like they would respect your opinion more if you said, I really don't want to do this. And I, that's kind of like I made that decision. I'm like, this isn't, this isn't, the religion isn't for me. And they, they kind of respect it. Like I didn't have to go to uh, services on the, the high holy days anymore. You know, is like, that right? After 13, you are empowered. Yeah. I mean, at least that's how my family treated it. And oh. I know other kids that it was treated the same thing, you know, like you, you couldn't like get your own apartment or anything. Well, and I but, wonder, I wonder about that where, where it seems like that precise like post-war generation, yeah. There was there was just this enormous decline in interest in religion. All the all that sort of first-generation immigrants from Europe who still practiced the religion of the old country, but also a lot of the Protestant denominations and the Catholics that had been in America for generations. But that that whole sort of post-war vibe of just like we are nobody wants to go to church anymore and right. come on let's get serious we're a modern generation now and we're not we're not playing around with these old uh superstitions and you know when i was a kid and when you were a kid when the moral majority which was sort of the first na- national the the first uh, that i recall national movement of evangelicals Jerry Falwell's moral yeah, majority. Sure. When that burst onto the national scene, I remember the adults in my world were shocked and like, like contemptuously, dismissively surprised at this resurgence of what they considered to be a kind of hillbilly religion, like a tent revival style, uh, like prosperity gospel. And I, and I remember, I remember the, the consensus among the adults in my life was that 
that sort of organized practice of religion, particularly one that involved salvation, was a thing that that humanity was evolving past, and I mean socially evolving, right? Like we were in motion and progress was synonymous with moving beyond a, a strict religious interpretation right. of what, what it means to be a human being. And you could maintain Catholicism or Judaism or Protestantism as a ritual because you liked the songs or because you appreciated the, the feeling or because even you believed in, uh, in a benevolent God who loved you. But there was like a strict interpretation of the Bible, a literal interpretation of it. They couldn't believe that there, that there was still power in that. And then as the 80s and 90s progressed, and that kind of took root again. Yeah. Took hold over people again. And there was this big resurgence of it such that a lot of the people that I knew in, in indie rock in the 90s were children that were, had been, that were a product of this resurgence of evangelicalism in the 80s. Like my very close friend Dave Bazan. But, but, Damien Gerardo, like dozens and dozens of famous Seattle indie rockers all came from this, you know, like deeply uh, Christian tradition where people were talking in tongues. I mean, serious, like, yeah, like tent revival style. And it and it affected the culture up here. I knew a lot of people that were and there was a prominent church here, Mars Hill, where it was this wives submit to your husband's style of religion, but mated with tattoos and rock and roll and getting drunk. But it was also all in the service of Jesus. And I think it's still very powerful here, but, but it's always been curious to me that there was that, that, that secular era where, and and it's and it's so it's so pervasive in the culture of the fifties and sixties, right? Where you were Paul Simon and you were growing up in Brooklyn, or or your grandparents lived in Brighton Beach, but you were a young guy and you wanted to get out of their old dumb world and stop going to temple and get downtown and make some and sing some doo wop on the street corners and and get laid and read comic books, you know, and. And then this weird return to it, post-hippie, Reagan-era return to this, this like, what felt like a real, real backsliding. We would like to say thank you very much to Mac Weldon, whose slogan is, Mac Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. And this might be true. They believe in a smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping the website couldn't be easier to use you go there and you see exactly what they have there's not like oh i got 20 pages no it's like this is what they make boom it's right there it's simple it's straightforward you pick the thing oh you want you want some new underwear you want a t-shirt you want a hoodie it's right there you pick it you pick the color that you want the material you want done 
All their products are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. They're the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, and hoodies, and sweatpants you will ever wear. And they want you to be comfortable. That's their goal. That's a whole goal. So you get to try it out. If you don't like your first pair, you keep it, and they still refund you. They don't even ask you why. Not only do they look good, they perform well. You go work out. You go hang out. I, I will put out there, I think you could go on dates wearing this stuff, and maybe you should. MacWeldon.com is a place to go, and you'll get 20% off using the promo code ROADWORK. Support the show. Improve your wardrobe. Mac, M-A-C-K, MacWeldon.com. Promo code ROADWORK to save 20%, and you get to keep that first pair no matter what. Thanks very much to Mac Weldon for making this show possible. You know, when I went to college, I went to Jesuit school, and... What is I went that? In. that was the university that you went was a that was Gonzaga University, yeah, Jesuits, which are you know which are the sort of educator arm of the Catholics, although although there are a lot of i think every every single one of the sort of Catholic sects is sects is also a uh, also considers themselves sort of educational just depends on who you're educating. Mm-hmm. The Jesuits were like a counter reformation group. And then they went to America and, and uh, took it upon themselves to, to convert a lot of the native Americans to Catholicism, but they were considered sort of somewhat the intellectuals of the Catholic church. Our current Pope is a Jesuit, but I went in with a, with a lot of, uh, with a big chip on my shoulder about it. Just thinking, okay, here I go. I'm going into the, I'm going into a monastery basically. And all these priests are living together in a dormitory. Some of them old men who've lived their whole life in, uh, in a kind of like in a setting where they were college teachers, but also like (laughs) never left the dorms. And, uh, my, one of my first classes I took at the college was, a was an old Testament class. And I sat in there that first day pretty smugly and the teacher walked in and he was in his priestly collar. Really? And he was portly <laughs> and he was covered with dandruff and Ugh. chalkboard chalk. And I was like, this is too much. This yeah. is too perfect. And he just started right off like, what is the Old Testament? And I was super smug and raised my hand kind of, you know, I already had my feet up on the chair in front of me and I was like, this is the word of God and he said no i see where you're coming from smart ass but no the old testament is a long series of oral traditions of many many tribes throughout the you know the sort of distant prehistory and i immediately put my took my feet off of the chair in front of me and sat up and was like really i didn't know there were priests that were coming at it from here And I realized after, you know, a couple of weeks at Gonzaga that all of the priests were pretty forward on sort of archaeological Christianity and and recognizing that the Christian tradition was a uh, that a lot of the Bible was metaphorical, but that that didn't diminish its power. And it didn't diminish the truth of it. And it didn't diminish the fact that there was a, a loving God. It just wasn't meant, you know, it was, it was a unsophisticated people translating 
religious inspiration into into language that they understood. That was their take on it. And I was kind of captivated by that. I was like, wow, that mm. seems that seems reasonable, right? If God were communicating with you through a kind of emotional conduit where he wasn't always appearing within burning bush, but was sort of influencing you emotionally and through visions that of course you would be constrained by your environment right? in, in the language that you could use and what, what, how you were receiving that message. And particularly, you know, if the message was sort of awe inspiring or if you were having an, uh, a, uh, a religious experience, you wouldn't maybe be able to, it was, it's kind of like in the movie contact when, when uh, the alien appears to Jodie Foster in the shape of her father. Right. And says, you wouldn't really be able to handle seeing us in our natural state. So this is, you know, I get that you know that I'm not your father. I'm just here to kind of make this handleable for you. Right. That was pretty Carl Sagan-y and like, and I think Carl Sagan was tipping his hat to this archaeological Christianity notion of like, yeah, right. I mean, God is just kind of, he's appearing as in a way that hopefully you understand. And so that was appealing to me. And that felt like, look, if the, if these priestly orders where they are still maintaining uh, celibacy and they're still practicing a lot of the really like uh, they're, they're practicing tenets of the faith that truly require a lifelong commitment and a lifelong sacrifice. So they're taking this very seriously. They're not saying like, Oh, it's all a metaphor and it just means be cool to each other. You know, it's like, like no Catholicism's real and we believe it all the way to, to the fact that we don't eat meat on Fridays. Right. Um, and yet we're also capable of understanding that, that throughout historical time, human beings themselves are fairly unreliable narrators. And there's enough evidence that humans wrote the Bible that we don't have to sit and say, this is exactly a word for word transcription of what God said. That seemed to be where we were headed, right? Just civilization wide. We were going to, we were just going to understand these things to be true. Scientists are not trying to dupe us. They don't have an agenda. They're just curious people that are discovering these things, reading books and books aren't always true either. Humans are unreliable narrators, but like once you get a preponderance of evidence it sort of requires like faith, allows you to take in all this evidence and maintain a sense of this emotional connection. Faith is not a tool that we use to deny evidence. And that was, that was completely understandable to me. And that through my twenties or teens probably, and and early twenties, it inspired me It inspired me to say, Am I, am I capable of a religious experience? Like it doesn't require that I, that I dismiss knowledge. It doesn't require that I be ignorant. You know, what if I get hit by a lightning bolt and would I even be a reliable translator? If an archangel appeared to me on the road and said, 
do good or fight the heathens yeah, or <laughs> drown everyone in the sin who doesn't convert or whatever it is that they're, you know, whatever it is that archangels have to tell us. But then this, this, this swell, this ground spell, a groundswell nationwide it, globally of this return to a kind of religion where you were meant to take, you were meant to accept what the priests told you. You were meant to take the most orthodox interpretation of these ancient scriptures. You were meant to use the scripture in place of all other knowledge. What is, what happened? Like, seriously, what happened? We were going so good there for a while. (laughs) Like we harness the atom mostly. We have, you know, we almost have microwaves that can cook to the center of a lasagna. We haven't, <laughs> we haven't yet, we haven't yet met that challenge no. completely either, but we're close. Some microwaves don't even spin anymore. They don't have to. So, I mean, what, what do you, what do you make of it, Dan? Like what, 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 what happened? We were, it seemed to me at 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 a certain point that i mean i guess you and i were raised in a time when it seemed like civilization was progressing linearly yes i knew exactly things what you were mean. getting right things were getting smarter and better and more reasonable with every passing day and it included like we had more civil rights now. Right. We had more, greater understanding of how the universe works. I mean, remember when we were kids, we had no idea that the Gulf of Mexico represented a, an asteroid impact. Like the whole notion that the dinosaurs were killed by a giant asteroid impact happened in our lifetime. The whole notion of tectonic plates right. was it happened within our lifetime. So we were discovering major things and it seemed to point in a direction. And now we're living in a world where all the major conflicts are happening between religions that are, that are trying to go back to like some core belief from 1500 years ago when people wipe their hands with their, or wipe their butts with their hands. (laughs) And I, I don't know what the appeal is and I don't know what was so scary about science that, that sent everybody chasing back to this voodoo. And I don't know what the end result is like, like Ted Cruz was a major candidate for the presidency this year. And I think that, I mean, I think that he believes that God is talking to him. I know for a fact he does. God is talking in his ear. And this is a like national political figure that we were we were that we thought maybe was better than the than the narcissistic lunatic who who ended up beating him. Right. I mean, at least Donald Trump doesn't think that Jesus is talking to him. But but we're you know we're engaged in this like battle for the hearts and minds of half the world with uh you know with this. I mean, I guess ISIS is, we, we inflate their importance, but they're making a broad appeal to hundreds of millions of people that they are the, that they're the, they're God's government on earth. Yeah. 
and the, and just within Israel itself, it's just like, what is going on here? Are we seriously fighting? The, is this what we're fighting? I don't get it. I don't get it, Dan. What? So please don't ask me to explain that. Well, what happened? I don't know. Like, a lot happened. There were a lot of plane hijackings and things. <laughs> a lot of things changed, right? Uh, yeah, plane. I mean, I guess, I guess the threat of nuclear war was so scary to everybody. It was scary to me. Yeah, very scary. Oh, I used to wake up. Uh, in the middle of the night sometimes when I was a kid, when I was, you know, like, remember that movie, The Day After, when that came out, The Day After? All these, there was a big, you know, what what's popular, like, zombies are really popular today. Mm-hmm. When we were kids, nu- anything about nuclear war was really popular. Well, yeah, popular being a weird way of putting it, but yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, as far we were- as, like, movies and fodder for discussion and in the popular news and... But but do you think do you think that that turned us against science? You know, it turned us against science for the sake of science. You know, I well, we had during our Skype issues a few minutes ago. <laughs> uh, I was reading an article while I was waiting for your internet to recover itself about the, I don't know how to say the Teller Ulem 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 design of the hydrogen bomb oh oh i see and i'm thinking about this stuff because i recently watched dr strangelove right and they talk about all of this stuff and the you know the the idea of a doomsday bomb and all this but like that was it made that movie was made in the early to mid 60s somewhere in there like 64 64 65 oh i thought earlier I'm I thought pretty it was, sure I'll have to like you know, it was like sixty one. No, I know it wasn't sixty one. I'm looking it up. It's nineteen sixty four. Oh, it was sixty four. Sixty four. Hmm. But you know, to me, a part of it is because it's a black and white film. <laughs> but it feels like an an old movie. But it still feels like a movie that I can connect with. Like it doesn't feel like it's a movie from my parents' time. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like uh, it's a wonderful life or something. Well, no, it felt. It felt. I mean, the first time I watched it, which was in the eighties, it still felt seditious. Right. Yes. Perfect word. I couldn't believe that it had come out in sixty four because I had this idea that, you know, that the, the terror of the Soviets had had. Uh, had dispelled all irony from the from the national conversation. You couldn't right. talk that way because it would be sedition. Yeah, but it was it's hilarious, and it is you know, and it's it it described the world that we grew up into. That I mean, very idea, very much described it. Right, I mean, war games, basically, war games, a very influential movie on both of us. Oh yes. Um, it described the exact same scenario, except it starred Matthew Broderick right. instead of, you know, George C. Scott. Right. But yeah, this idea that somehow this, that we had, we had harnessed the atom and it had immediately turned us into created the specter of global annihilation. 
maybe that was too much for everybody and the comfort of of reading tea leaves and burnt offerings and uh, bags full of magic stones and burning bushes and golems that just seemed it seemed apprehendable or or bet or, or e- more easily um taken in than yeah. the idea that uh you know the 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 notion of mutually assured destruction i mean i still struggle to understand mutually assured destruction not not the not the concept but that anybody could have such a religious faith in such a crazy doctrine right like mutually assured destruction is is so much crazier that maybe uh you know maybe zoroastrianism seemed more reasonable 